Okay, well, turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be today. And we're starting a new series uh, in this book. Um, If you were around for any time last year, you probably remember that uh, we preached a series through Paul's first letter to Timothy. And so over the next few months, we're going to look at his second letter to Timothy, where Paul exhorts and instructs Timothy to guard the good deposit that had been entrusted to him. So today we're going to look at the first seven verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Let's read these verses together and we'll begin. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God according to the promise of the life That is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin our uh, consideration of these verses I just read, I want to ask you to use your imagination here for just a second, and picture something with me. Imagine the final moments of your life. You've reached the end and you know you don't have much time left. You are soon going to die. I know that that sounds maybe a little bit morbid at first. Maybe maybe it even strikes you as being just a tad bit Depressing to to think about your own death, but just bear with me a moment and picture yourself there on your deathbed. You are surrounded by your loved ones. Picture their faces, your parents, your spouse, your children, your closest friends. All of them are gathered there around you. You have them together in the same room, and they are all waiting with bated breath to hear your last words to them. In that moment, what would you say? You know that there's not much time, so what would you want to communicate to them? What's the one thing that you would want them to know? In some ways... That's not unlike what's happening here in 2 Timothy. Paul knows he's nearing the end of his life. He knows his time is short. 
He doesn't have much longer. And there are things he wants to say. There are things he wants Timothy to know. So when you think of this letter, one thing you might keep in mind that that could be helpful is that these are the last written words we have from the Apostle Paul. In this way, this is a, a final testament of a dying man. Of course, Paul hopes to see Timothy face to face one more time. He says so in chapter 4, verse 9. He says, do your best to come to me soon. And Paul even gives some instructions to Timothy should he have the chance to visit. But who knows if that visit ever worked out. We don't know for sure whether Paul and Timothy ever saw each other again. So this letter may very well have been the last contact they ever had. Which means it might just be Paul's final word to someone he loves. Now, one thing about Paul is that at the end of his life, he did not have the luxury of dying in a nice room surrounded by his loved one. No, as Paul is writing this letter, he is in prison, which is something that he alludes to in chapter 2, where he says that he is suffering for the gospel. He says he's bound with chains as a criminal. So that's Paul's situation, right? He is incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. He is experiencing persecution on account of his years of being a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, Paul's list of loved ones by this point has grown incredibly short. Even if he were able to be surrounded by people that he cares about, there aren't many of them left. He says so in in chapter 4. Once again, Paul says, everyone has deserted me. He says elsewhere, only Luke remains with me. That's Luke who who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. So at this point, so far as we can tell, the list of people that Paul is still close to is number one, Luke, and number two, Timothy. That's pretty much it. That's all. So not only must Paul face the end of his life in prison, he must also face the end of his life knowing that most of his companions in the faith have now deserted him, left him alone to suffer. And it's in this dire situation, with his impending death in view, that we get to hear what is foremost on Paul's mind. We get to hear his thoughts. So look back at the way the letter begins. It begins with a greeting in verses 1 and 2. That's customary for a a New Testament letter. And here in this greeting, there are a couple of things that stand out. For one thing, Paul was confident in the Lord to the very end. Just notice he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. The Lord had chosen Paul. He had appointed him to be an apostle. Paul did not choose choose this for himself. No, Paul was was called to this by a divine call. So as Paul looks back over his life, he's realizing that everything he was able to do, all, all the ministry efforts that he was able to apply himself to, all the ways that he had been used to spread the gospel, all of it was from the hand of the Lord. 
And all of it, he says, is according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Now that is a remarkable thing for a dying man to say. I mean, of all the things that that Paul could bring up, of all the things that he could talk about, the first thing that he mentions is his hope of eternal life. This hope is not just something that Paul was satisfied to preach to others. No, it was the very thing that had sustained him throughout his own life and his own ministry so that even as he is awaiting his own death, he can rest his soul upon the life that is to come because of Jesus Christ who said in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. So that's the first thing that stands out in this greeting that that Paul was supremely confident In the Lord, and he was confident in the Lord to the very end of his life. The second thing is Paul's fatherly love for Timothy. He calls Timothy, he refers to him as his beloved child. And as Paul's beloved child, he he wanted Timothy's life and Timothy's ministry to overflow with all the, the grace and the mercy. And the peace that come from knowing the triune God. In fact, it's Paul's deep and abiding love for Timothy that's one of the most striking things that that, that comes to us throughout the entirety of this letter. It it rises to the forefront of this epistle. And it's something we see right away. Not only in the greeting, but also in the verses that come immediately after. You see... Paul is is looking ahead, he's he's looking toward his impending death where he knows he will go to be with the Lord, he will have eternal life with Jesus Christ. But Paul is also looking back. He's looking back at the ways that he has seen the gospel of Jesus Christ change lives. And, and, And one of the lives that Paul saw the gospel change was that of Timothy. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul tells him, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life about which you made the good confession. So when Paul thinks of Timothy, the first thing that comes to his mind is that Timothy's life, his entire life, everything about him has been defined by the gospel. Whatever else you could say about Timothy, that was the main thing, that was the the primary central thing that Timothy was called according to the gospel. Timothy had confessed the gospel. And our text for today tells us that this was because Timothy had had the gospel faithfully passed on to him by others. And because he had received that gospel, because he had received what had been passed on to him, Timothy's life had now been completely and utterly transformed. And really, in a way, that's what brings me to our big idea for today's sermon. Here's the thing I want to impress upon you is what I want you to walk away with this morning. I want you to see that just like Timothy, you are following Jesus today because someone in your life declared and displayed the gospel to you. Now it's your turn to do the same for others. In the book of Romans, Paul says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you're living for Jesus today, if you have 
faith in him, if you're following him, it's because someone somewhere took the time and made the effort to pass on the gospel, the word of Christ to you so that you could hear it. God used someone in your life to make a profound transformative difference in your heart, in your soul, and in your life. And today, God is calling each and every one of us, if we are believers, we are Christians, he's calling us to do the same thing. He's calling us to make a difference by passing on the gospel to others in the same way that it has been passed on to us. Emmaus, that's why we're here. Right? That's, that's why we exist as a church. God has placed us here at this time because he wants to use us to declare and display his gospel so that others may know him. I believe that. Do you? I also believe this. We need all the help we can get. Human nature is profoundly self-centered. This is even true for us as Christians, right? Our hearts find all sorts of ways to deceive us into looking no further than ourselves. If I could speak personally, I would say this. I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time being preoccupied with my own interests, my desires, my felt needs, my situation, the things about my life that, man, I wish that would change. And if I'm preoccupied with those things, you know what I'm not thinking about? I'm not thinking about you. I'm not thinking about other people. I'm not giving due consideration to how I can show Jesus to others. I'm not being attentive to what opportunities I have in my life to, to point other people to the gospel. So if we're going to live in such a way that we are passing on the gospel to others, and we need what this text has to say. We need to learn how to get outside of our own heads so that we can see the people who are right in front of us who need the gospel, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Paul models for us in these verses. In fact, he shows us two characteristics of a gospel-centered missional frame of mind. So that's sort of the outline of the sermon for this morning. It consists of two characteristics. These are two characteristics of a gospel-centered missional frame of mind. Let's look at the first of these characteristics. Starting in verse 3, Paul is demonstrating for us the power and the potency of gospel remembrance. Gospel remembrance. And this is significant because remembrance is one of the most formative aspects of human nature. As human beings, we are profoundly shaped by the memories that we have, that, that we store up in our minds. Some of the things that most deeply impact your life today are things that you remember from your childhood. Or things that you remember from a past season of your life. That, that's the power that, that memory can hold over us. That's not only true of us as individuals. It could also be true of entire societies, entire civilization. Like if you go to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., 
and you walk into the front entrance of the museum, one of the things that's going to catch your eye is there is an inscription on the wall. And the inscription is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, which says, guard yourself and guard your soul carefully, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest these things depart from you all the days of your life. And you shall make them known to your children and to your children's children. So the idea there is that one of the keys to not repeating an atrocity like the Holocaust is that we must remember it. We should never forget the millions and millions of lives that were taken at the hands of the Third Reich. Why? Because there is power in remembering. We recognize this, that our understanding of life in the present is largely oriented by how we remember the past. And from everything else that we see here in this text, Paul fully recognized this as well. He understood this in a very real way. This is why he says to Timothy, I remember you in my prayer. I remember your tears. I am reminded of your sincere faith. In my mind, I I, I think these, these opening verses of the letter, they almost read like one giant flashback. Like in a movie or a TV show, there are those moments where a character is remembering something and it transports the story out of the present and it takes you to the past where something significant is taking place. That's a lot like what's going on here with Paul. He's having a sort of flashback. And I think that that these opening verses show us that this flashback is shaping Paul in three specific ways. There are three distinct ways that, that Paul's gospel remembrance is forming him as he writes this letter. The first way we see this is that gospel remembrance forms prayer. It forms prayer. As he thinks about Timothy, as he remembers what God has done in Timothy's life, Paul is giving thanks to God. He says, I thank my God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you in my prayers. And just notice, this is not some like casual passing remembrance. It's not like, oh, I wonder how Timothy's doing. I wonder how he's getting along. No, that's not what this is. Instead, Paul says he remembers Timothy in his prayers both night and day, day and night. For Paul, the Spirit of God is constantly bringing Timothy to his mind. So that the sun comes up, Paul's remembering Timothy. And as the sun goes down in the evening, Paul is still there remembering Timothy, still practicing gospel remembrance, still praying and giving thanks for God's grace in the life of this servant, Timothy. And related to these prayers, we also see that gospel remembrance shapes relationships. That's the the second way that that this is forming Paul. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul's remembrance is causing him to rejoice at the very thought of being in the presence of Timothy. 
Right? There's such a, a relational depth and richness between these two brothers that Paul is basically saying, Timothy, if I, if I could just see you, if I could just be with you for a moment, I would be overcome with joy. I would overflow with rejoicing. Most likely, Paul is calling to mind the last time that he and Timothy had seen each other. It was a tearful goodbye. That's what he's alluding to when he says, I remember your tears. It's like there's this, this painful side of God's mission that Paul is all too familiar with. Paul knows serving God involves sacrifice. It involves loss. It involves relational deprivation. It involves weeping. It involves hard goodbyes. At Emmaus, we know this all too well. We've done our fair share of gospel goodbyes over the years where people were sent out from us to fulfill a ministry calling. And as Paul remembers his own experience with this, his own gospel goodbye with Timothy, he is overwhelmed with longing for his brother. Paul desires to be in the presence of his beloved son in the faith. And really, that, that's not a small thing in the text. Right? This is not some like, minor detail that we can sort of pass over as if it's unimportant or irrelevant. Because what this detail reminds us is that there is no substitute for being with the people of God. There's no substitute for that. It's not a stretch to think back on how during the COVID-19 pandemic, there were times when churches were not able to gather in person. And a lot of churches were doing, you know, church online is what they called it. Many Christians were encouraged to, to stay home, be safe, and worship with the church online. Worship with us on live stream. But let me ask, is that really possible? Is it really possible to do church online? I, I don't think so. I don't think it is because the church, by its very nature, one of the things that it requires is the physical presence of other believers. It requires us to be together as the people of God in the presence of God. I don't want to disparage what any churches were doing during a difficult time, but you can't do church online. It's not possible. Isn't that what Jesus told us? That when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It's great that we get to hear preaching online when we can't come to church. That's a, that's a wonderful resource we have at our disposal. Just like it was great that, that Paul had parchment and ink with which to write a letter to Timothy. But that's not a substitute for the real thing. That, that cannot take the place of the joy that we receive when we are face to face with our fellow believers, with our fellow church members. That's why one of the things that we champion here at Emmaus is community. Our commitment as a church is that we covenant together to build gospel culture. Which means that we don't just declare and display the gospel out there in the world to other people who are on the outside of the church. We also declare and display the gospel right here to each other in this setting. And so when we, when we gather, it's a really big deal because being together as the people of God is a major way that we learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. We can't follow him alone. 
There is no such thing as discipleship in isolation. There is no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. No, in order for me to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, in order for me to keep believing the gospel, in order for me to be the person that I am called by God to be, I need Christ in you. And for those same things, you need Christ in me. And gospel remembrance helps us to see just how true that really is, that the people around you this morning are one of the greatest sources of joy that you have in the Christian life. Paul demonstrates this for us in a powerful way. And then finally, we see how gospel remembrance shapes a missional perspective. So it shapes prayer, it shapes relationships, and it shapes a missional perspective. When it comes to the mission of God, we know that the gospel is something that is meant to be passed on. It's meant to be shared with others. In our day and age, we talk about something going viral, right? We, 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 we're referring to a, a tweet or a, a YouTube video that gets shared to a wide enough degree that it, it starts to exert a, a lot of influence over a great many people on social media and so forth. That's how it's supposed to be with the gospel. It's supposed to go viral. We believe in the Great Commission. And so we make every effort to share the gospel far and wide. We want it to have as much influence in the world as possible. In fact, this is exactly how some of you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you heard the gospel preached to, to, to a multitude of people at an evangelistic event and you responded in faith. Or maybe a, a stranger came up to you one day randomly, seemingly out of nowhere, and shared the gospel with you, and you believed. Or, or maybe you, you came across a video online that persuaded you to think, hey, maybe there's really something to this whole Jesus thing. And it started, started you on a journey of faith with Jesus Christ. Whatever the case, whatever the circumstances, many of us woke up today trusting in Christ because the gospel was shared widely enough to reach us when we were far from God. And yet, the gospel is not only shared widely, it can also be shared deeply. Some of us cannot remember a time in our lives where the gospel was not there because we were given the blessing of growing up in a Christian home. You know, this is often like the boring testimony. Oh, my, my testimony is so boring. Because you were, you were raised in the church. Your, your parents brought you up going to church. You were never without the gospel. That's my story. I grew up in a believing household. My parents are faithful Christians. They told me about the Lord time and time again. They took me to Sunday school every week. And so the, the gospel was simply something I could not escape, even when I wanted to. And believe me, there, there were times in my life when I did want to escape, when I did think, I'm going to try to outrun this, this whole gospel thing. But Jesus Christ was always there, never letting me go, never giving up on me, always hunting me down with the invitation to trust in Him. And one thing that Paul's gospel remembrance shows us in this text was that was Timothy's story as well. He grew up in a Christian home. He grew up under the influence of the gospel. So the gospel was shared with him not widely, 
but it was shared with him deeply. As Paul was writing these words, I can't help but wonder if he was imagining Timothy as a young boy sitting at his grandmother's kitchen table or being tucked into bed at night by his mom. And and Paul is picturing Lois and Eunice in these settings, faithfully commending the Lord's faithfulness to young Timothy. In verse 3, Paul mentions those who were his ancestors. Well, Timothy had heard a great deal about these ancestors. He had heard about them from Lois and Eunice. He had, he had heard those stories of how God rescued the children of Israel from the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God brought them safely through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and into the land that he had promised them. And once they were in that land, God delivered them once more, this time from the Goliath, from Goliath and the Philistine. He rescued them through the slingshot of a young shepherd boy. And later on, when God's people were sent into exile on account of their sin, God was faithful to save a remnant who returned to the land, still worshiping the God of their fathers. And on and on and on throughout his childhood, Timothy heard about this God, that he is mighty and merciful to save his people. And his mother and his grandmother being faithful Christian women told Timothy, all of this points to Jesus. It all points to to the reality that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He was the one who was sent from heaven to seek and save that which was lost. So Timothy, if you only remember one thing, let it be this. God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul remembering how Timothy's life was never once without that message. It was handed down to him by a mother and a grandmother who loved Jesus with all their hearts. And so Paul says in verse 6, he says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. The second characteristic of a gospel-centered missional frame of mind is gospel responsibility. So we have gospel remembrance and gospel responsibility. Because of the fact that Lois and Eunice loved Jesus, they felt a responsibility to help Timothy love Jesus as well. And Paul is seeing that connection. He's making that connection as he's writing and he's applying it to Timothy's ministry context. That's why Paul starts verse 6 with the phrase, for this reason. He's saying that just as someone took responsibility for Timothy to know the Lord, now Timothy is responsible to do that for others. God had given him a gift, and Timothy was responsible to steward that gift. He was called to fan it into flame so that others could know and love and follow Jesus Christ. Friends, this is where gospel remembrance is supposed to lead us. It's supposed to lead us toward gospel responsibility. Remembering what God has done for you. Remembering the the things that others have done to make a difference in your life. These things should lead you to want to do something as well for others. Of course, we need to keep in mind that the gospel is good news about a work that is finished. 
Jesus said so from the cross. We sang about that in one of the hymns we, we were just singing together. He cried out, it is finished. It is done. And so there's nothing that we can do to add to that. There, there's no way that you can do something that will make God love you more. There's nothing that you can do to earn any good thing from him. He gave up his son for us. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. So even, even your best efforts to pass the gospel on to somebody else does not add anything to your justification. Now, if you are in Christ, your salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, so that you will never be more justified than you are right now in this moment. You will never be less justified if you fail to pass on the gospel to somebody else. Your justification is fixed. It's eternal. It's irrevocable. But God's grace in the gospel also has another effect. It never leaves us unmoved. It, it never leaves us stagnant and stalled out, shrugging our shoulders at the gospel needs that are all around us. No, God gives us his grace, not just to save us from something, but also to set us in motion towards something. You know that God's grace is powerfully active in your life when you are no longer content to stand on the sideline. Instead, you want skin in the game. You, you want to be in on the mission. It's like what I get to be part of every day by being called by God, by, by receiving this gift in the gospel from him, what I get to do is like a bigger deal than the Super Bowl. In fact, it, it's such a big deal that God gives to us his Holy Spirit. We need his spirit dwelling within us. By all indication, this was Timothy's greatness. Timothy did not have a big personality. He wasn't the kind of guy who could command a room by being the loudest or the smartest or the biggest or the strongest. Timothy did not have the riz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a lame dad trying to be cool up here. <laughs> You can't pull that off when you're almost 40. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. Thanks for being patient with me. <laughs> no, but, but Timothy was probably a shy person. He was probably a timid person. He, he, he was afraid to speak, in mind, speak his mind. I think that's why Paul identifies the problem of fear in verse 7. Look at what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. He says, Timothy... You have a gift from God. I would know that you have this gift because I was there when you received it. It was confirmed by the laying on of my hands. So fan that gift into flame because God has given you his spirit and his spirit does not let us settle for fear. No, when the spirit is present, when he is indwelling you, he produces things like power and love. And self-control. Everything you need to fulfill your gospel responsibility. I can't think of anything that a, a timid, fearful leader needs to hear more than that. And really, I think if we're honest, that's true of all of us. We all need to hear this time and time again. 
When we think of our own lives and when we think of the the gospel responsibility that we have for other people, let's be honest. There are times when it leaves us feeling anxious. There are times when we we struggle with being fearful and afraid. Like, Like, what if I go to share the gospel with that person, with that friend of mine, and it totally kills the relationship? Or what if I spend my entire adult life, raising my children to know and love Jesus. And when they leave the house, they end up walking away from it. What if I follow what I believe God is calling me to do and I end up being a tremendous failure? It all blows up in my face. What if I open my heart to the church once again and I end up getting burnt just like last week? What then? I mean, these are, these are fears, these are questions that many of us are bringing to the table this morning. But the Holy Spirit is here in this place. And through this text, he's, he's speaking to our hearts to remind us that his presence with us is enough to put all our fears into perspective so we can look to him together. We can can gather in this place to look to the Spirit of God in Christ so that He will give to us as a gift power and love and self-control. Friends, what this means when we receive these things from the Spirit, what it means is that we don't have to spend another moment of our lives being afraid. We don't have to spend another moment cowering to fear. No, we can press into our gospel responsibility with confidence, knowing that we have received it from the Lord. In fact, he's given us ample opportunities to do just that. We have so many opportunities to pass the gospel on to other people. There are even opportunities right in front of us at church today. You think about the, the share and invite initiative that we started last year, or, or care portal, or I mean, what about Emmaus kids? Right? Think about that for a second. There are kids in classrooms right now who are hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they hear about him week after week after week, and that is forming them. That The Holy Spirit is using that gospel to form who they will become in life. That is a tremendous thing. What an opportunity. And I'm standing in front of you as living proof today that a Sunday school teacher can make a huge difference in the life of a child. So it's not a matter of whether we have a chance to pass on the gospel to others? We most certainly do. We have so many chances. So that's not the question. Instead, the question that lies before us today is will we make the most of the chances we have? Will we overcome fear by the Spirit of Christ? Will we receive from Him power and love and self-control so that we can step out and fulfill our gospel responsibility? That's what's being asked of us today in this text. You know, nearly 24 years ago, a pastor by the name of John Piper, who's a very well-known preacher, he stood up in front of a crowd of young people at a conference in Memphis, Tennessee, and he preached to them a very simple, straightforward message. He said to them, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. And that message 
struck a nerve. It resonated in a powerful way. And over the years, that message of don't waste your life, it has impacted thousands and thousands of people. And I think I know why. I think I know why it has had this impact. The message to not waste our lives is so powerful because we know that one day at some point or another, we're going to be right where Paul was when he was writing 2 Timothy. Not necessarily in prison, but we all know that eventually we're going to come to the end of our lives. We're going to have to stare death in the face. We're going to come face to face with the grave. And for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are following him, when we look back over our lives and we're practicing gospel remembrance, what is it that we're going to see? What will we see? Will we be able to trace a theme of gospel responsibility? Will we be able to say that there are people who know and love and follow Jesus because we were faithful to pass on his gospel? Will we be able to say with confidence what Paul said in the end? One of the last things he ever wrote was 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And Paul says, it's not only for me though, it's also for all of those who along with me have loved his Oh, I want to be able to come to the end of my life. I want to be able to say that. I want that to be my testimony at the very end. So let's remember this and not forget. You are following Jesus today. I am following Jesus today. Because someone declared and displayed the gospel to you and to me. Now it's our turn. It's our turn to do the same. So Emmaus, let's fan that. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for each person here today, every person under the sound of my voice, that the gospel would prevail upon our thoughts, that it would prevail upon our affections and our motivations and our actions. So that our lives would be brought completely under the lordship of Jesus. Help us to remember, God, the ways that the gospel was declared and displayed to us. And use that to impress upon us the gospel responsibility that we now have. To declare it and and, and to display it to others. Whoever you happen to, to place in our path. Lord, as we look to you together, would you be gracious to breathe upon us by your Spirit so that the flame that we carry for you would not grow dim, but that it would be fanned or to burn brighter and brighter and brighter so that more people would come to know who you are and what you have done It's for the glory of Christ's name that we pray all these things.
So now that we have 